I forgot to mention it earlier, but uh, most of you probably saw it on your way in. There's a table back there with some books on it, and uh, Dr. Dever and the Nine Marks group were kind enough to donate those to us. And so the title of the book is What is a Healthy Church? And I would encourage you to pick one up, take it home with you, read it, and enjoy it, and maybe pass it on to somebody else in the community or, or in the church. And so uh, those are back there for you, and uh, hopefully uh, you enjoy those. All right, if you're new to the valley or just new to Rockfish, what we like to do here is go through books of the Bible, and we're currently in the first chapter of the book of Mark. Last week we covered a, a whole wide array, just four verses. It was really strenuous getting through all four of them. Uh, this week we're going to cover verse 40 of chapter 1, and we're going to make it down through verse 12 of chapter 2. To catch you up here, Mark is writing to the end of proving that Jesus is the Messiah and God the Son. He's showed us thus far that Jesus fulfills prophecy, pleases the Father, overcomes temptation, preaches the good news of repentance and belief, calls people to himself, has authority over every realm, and advances the kingdom of God through prayer and preaching. And today we're going to see that Jesus cleanses, forgives, and proves that he is God. So our one big thing this morning is that Jesus gives. And we're going to work through the text accordingly in three parts. We're going to see Jesus give cleansing in verses 40 through 45. Jesus give forgiveness in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2. And we're going to see Jesus give proof in verses 6 through 12 of chapter 2. I also would like you to deal with a question this morning as you think about how Jesus gives. I would like you to think about this question, have I received? If Jesus gives, have I received? Would you pray with me before we get started? Lord Jesus, we thank you for what seemingly is a simple truth. That you forgive sinners. And Lord, we thank you for that precious truth. Because it means that we have been forgiven as we have expressed our faith in you. Lord, we thank you for the grace that you have given to us to, to give us this great privilege that we might know you, that we might walk with you, that we might daily be conformed more and more into your image by your holy word. And so, Lord, now we ask that you help us to Remember this like it's the first time to rejoice in the good news of the gospel that we have been forgiven and united to you. Lord, let this word that you caused my, Mark to write so long ago. Help it to shape us, help it to cause us to see you more beautifully. Help us to delight in it. And to submit to it. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, verse 40 of chapter 1. And a leper came to him, imploring him. Friends, this is reckless and it's outrageous. Lepers are not supposed to just go up to people. In fact, in Leviticus chapter 13, we're told that the person with such an infectious disease must wear torn clothing. Let his hair be unkept. 
cover up the lower part of his face and cry out, unclean, unclean. And as long as he has the infection, he remains unclean. He must live alone. He must live outside the camp. That's verses 45 and 46 of Leviticus 13. Indeed, lepers had pretty rough lives. And they were victims of far more than the disease of leprosy itself. I mean, leprosy robbed them of their health. And the sentence imposed on them as a consequence robbed them of their name, their occupation, their habits, their family, their fellowship, and their worshiping community. To ensure against contact with society, lepers were required to make their appearance as repugnant as possible. I mean, Josephus even speaks of the banishment of lepers. He calls them as those in no way differing from a corpse. It's not a good thing to be a leper. They're thought of as the living dead. They were untouchable. They made everything that they come into contact with unclean. If a leper came into a house, the house was unclean. It was contaminated. If a leper stood under a tree, that tree then polluted anyone who passed underneath of it. If a leper touched someone, the person became unclean. Nevertheless, this leper doesn't shout, unclean, unclean, but risks everything. He breaks law. He breaks custom on the chance of being healed, on the chance of being restored. No obstacle, not the decrees of the Torah, Nothing prevents him from coming to Jesus. And the leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling to him and said, If you will, you can make me clean. What faith! The leper does not question Jesus' ability to save him, only his willingness. I mean, here we expect Jesus to play the part of a good Jew and to respond by recoiling away from this man in a posture of defense and protection. Jesus can't be made unclean by his touch. But Jesus shocks here. He acts with compassion rather than contempt. Jesus turns to rather than away from the leper. He acts with mercy and he gives life in response to faith. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing. Be made clean. Immediately, the disease left the leper and he was healed. This is astounding. This is the scandal of grace. Ordinarily, one is made unclean by the touch of a leper, but what we see here is miraculous. Jesus touches the untouchable, yet he's not made unclean. Instead, he cleanses the unclean. In response to the man's faith, Jesus remedies his curse. He takes away his shame. He removes his defilement. Can you imagine being the leper? How beautiful the words must have sounded to his ears. I am willing. Be made clean. Jesus speaks these same words to those that have come to him in faith. 
We are all like the leper. We are all contaminated by sin. We are all outside of the kingdom of God until, until we come, kneel before the Savior and receive His mercy. Jesus is willing to cleanse you of your sin. As Isaiah says, though your sins are like scarlet, They will be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they will be like wool. Jesus gives cleansing. He gives life in response to faith. Have you received him? Have you heard his words? Have you felt his touch? Have you received the mercy of God? Verse 43. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once. And said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Jesus commands the man to follow the traditional rite of cleansing, which is specified in Leviticus 14. This leper must show himself to the priest and be declared legally clean. It's one of the legal responsibilities of priests, and it just kind of entailed he had to make a legal pronouncement regarding the disease of the former leper. He had to make the unclean clean officially, so some bureaucracy here. He's got to go through uh, the rest of the process to be officially clean. We also see here in Jesus' words the command to silence or the messianic secret, and we've seen this before already in We've dealt with it previously, so I'm not going to address it again here. But if you're interested in why Jesus is kind of telling this guy, shh, don't say anything to anybody, uh, you can check out uh, the sermon on verses 21 through 34 of chapter 1. That one's called Lord of the Realms, uh, and it's treated there. Anyhow, uh, the leper doesn't listen to Jesus' command of silence. Jesus says, hey, don't tell anybody. Leper says, "Uh, I just can't keep this in, right? Um, Praise is uh, the culmination of joy. I have to exclaim what has happened to me. And thus we read in verse 45, he went out and began to talk freely about it, to spread the news. This disobedience to the command of Christ, it results in Jesus' popularity growing. I mean, we're talking like Beyonce level proportions here, right? He can't go anywhere. Everybody knows who he is. Some of y'all don't know who Beyonce is. She's really famous, all right? Trust me. Anyhow, he can't even enter open towns. That's what 45, the second part of it, tells us. Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. Don't miss this. The story begins with Jesus on the inside of the town. He's able to enter the synagogues. He's able to teach freely. And it ends with him no longer able to enter a town openly. It ends with him in desolate places. Jesus has moved from insider to outsider. While the leper has moved from one that was an outsider to being an insider. See, Jesus and the leper have traded places at the end of the account. What we have here is a picture of the substitutionary work of Christ. His decision to heal the leper results in his being outside so that the leper can be inside. This is why Jesus came. 
He came to earth and he took hell on the cross so that we could have heaven, so that we could have him. And when we come to him, he takes on himself our sin, our sorrow, our shame. And he gives us his forgiveness, his holiness, his righteousness. He gives life in response to faith. And it's a glorious exchange. Jesus gives himself to cleanse us. Jesus becomes an outsider so we can become insiders. Jesus gives life. He is life. Have you received life? Have you received Jesus? That's the end of chapter one. We made it to chapter two. So, you know, pat on the back. Verse one, chapter two. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. And after digging through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. Jesus has returned home. Presumably it's at Peter's place where he's kind of been crashing and he's preaching to many that are gathered around his house. Four guys show up with a paralytic. Obviously he he can't walk and they're determined to get him to Jesus. They believe, I think, that Jesus can heal this man. Yet they find themselves on the outskirts of the crowd. They can't get close to Jesus. Because at this point, they have a great idea. They're going to go up to the roof and they're going to dig down through it to get this guy to Jesus. It's brilliant. You know, roofs in Palestinian homes were accessible by outside staircases. And uh, they kind of had this mud-like surface as as the roof. And it kind of held everything together. It was flat. You could go up there and pray and and eat, do your laundry. It's pretty awesome, I think. Uh, But they say, hey, there's this staircase right over here. Everybody's trying to get in the doorway. We're going to go up to the roof and come down. I think it's awesome. Mission impossible stuff going on there. And so they walk up the stairs, they get on the roof, and they start to dig down through the roof to get to Jesus. What what I find funny in this account, Jesus doesn't kind of acknowledge the whole digging through the roof. Like imagine like dirt falling in front of him. He just lets it go. I think it's funny. Anyhow, it's not not conventional, but it certainly does the trick. It's going to get the paralytic to Jesus. And I think these men illustrate for us the dedication that we ought to have as we pursue Christ. See, disciples must commit themselves to action. If an opening to Jesus cannot be found, one must be made. I think that's an adequate description of faith. It will remove any obstacle, even a roof, if necessary, to get to Jesus. Faith is first and foremost not knowledge about Jesus, but active trust that Jesus is sufficient. As those that know Jesus' power to cleanse, to heal, to give life, we ought be making every effort to bring men and women and children to Jesus. We ought to commit to sharing the teaching of Jesus with others. We should be ready to run and dig through the metaphorical walls and roofs in order to get others to Jesus. Which leads us to an important question. 
Do you know how to share Jesus with others? Do you know how to share your faith? If not, it's, it's not a huge deal. We're actually going to have a training down the road in October. We're going to do a thing called D-Now for the students. And uh, one of those days will be a training in how to share our faith. And so you're welcome to come to that. You're also welcome to just call me up or come over and say, hey, how can I share my faith? How can I share Jesus with somebody? And I would love to help walk you through that. It's a good thing to learn. It's an important tool to have. Are you doing everything that you can to bring others to Jesus? Let's aim this week and every week to step out in the power of the Holy Spirit, to share our faith, to bring others to Jesus by proclaiming the gospel. So these four guys in the paralytic have gotten past the crowds. Typically in Mark, we're going to see crowds are kind of in the way a lot of the time. They've, di- they've dug down through the roof. They've lowered the man down. And this is what Jesus' response is, right? They, they say, hey, we're going to get our friend healed. He's going to be able to walk. We're, we're going to get him to Jesus. They finally get him down through the roof. They get him to Jesus. It's healing time. It's walking time. And Jesus says, my child, your sins are forgiven. What? I mean, these guys in the paralytic, they must really think that's not exactly what, what we're asking for. It's not what we were hoping for. Jesus, you've got it wrong. I mean, the, the scene must have been something. You got dirt falling from the ceiling. Jesus keeps teaching. Guy shows up, says, Your sins are forgiven. Imagine their faces when instead of like, hey, get up and walk, it's your sins are forgiven. Their faces are a little bit like a a kid on Christmas morning that has some awesome gift in his mind. Like, hey, I I want that PlayStation or a BB gun. And he goes and unwraps like one of those ugly sweaters with a reindeer on it. And so you got to like, hey, that's great. I love it. While in their minds going, but what I really wanted... Jesus is not ignorant here. He's aware of the paralytic's desire to walk. In fact, the paralytic's deepest desire is to walk. And I think that's precisely why Jesus doesn't give it to him right away. See, Jesus also knows that walking is a crummy God. It's an idol. See, in my, in my sanctified imagination, the man desires nothing more than to walk. And he thinks to himself something like this. If I could just walk, then everything else would work out. All of my hardships would be over. And the rest of my life would fall into place. And the truth is that walking, as his deepest wish, has become his functional savior. That's what he is looking to for life. That's where he's looking to for satisfaction. Satisfaction was that last word, in case I slurred it too much for you. He's looking to the ability to walk rather than to Jesus. The truth is that after a few months, if he was granted this ability to walk, time would go by and he would find out life is not picture perfect. The man formerly known as the paralytic would find himself dissatisfied because even the gift of walking cannot ultimately satisfy It, like all other things, make crummy gods. And the truth is, 
that the roots of the discontent of the human heart dig down deep. They go deep. And because Jesus is so loving, he looks beyond the man's immediate need, his immediate desire. He looks beyond the man's deepest wish to his real need. Forgiveness for his sin. See, this is the, one of the beautiful things about Jesus. He doesn't give you your deepest wish until he has shown you that your deepest wish is actually him. Jesus doesn't give you your deepest wish until he has shown you that it's him. Jesus shows us that if our deepest desire, if our deepest wish is for anything other than him, it will fail us. And Jesus will not allow us to trust in these failing saviors, in these idols, in these crummy gods. No. He pushes us to let him be our savior. I think uh, Timothy Keller highlights this beautifully for us in recounting C.S. Lewis' classic story, The Voyage of the Don Treader. He writes, In the story, there is a boy named Eustace. Everybody hates him and he hates everybody. He is selfish, mean, and nobody can get along with him. Reminds me of you, Taryn. But he finds himself magically on a boat. The Don Treader. He's taking a great voyage. And at one point, this boat pulls into an island, and Eustace wanders off, and he finds a cave. And the cave proves to be filled with diamonds and rubies and gold. And he thinks, I'm rich. And immediately, because he is who he is, he thinks that now he'll be able to pay everybody back. Anyone who's laughed at him and stepped on him and slighted him, now he's going to be able to get their love and respect because he has wealth. Eustace then falls asleep on the pile of treasure. which he doesn't know yet is the hoard of a dragon. And as he falls asleep, he falls asleep with dragonish thoughts in his own heart. And when he wakes up, he has become a dragon. Big, terrible, ugly. And soon he realizes there's no way out. He can't go on the boat. He's going to be left behind on the island, alone. He's going to be big and terrible and horrible all of his life. He falls into despair. And then one day, the great lion, Aslan, shows up. And he leads him to a clear pool of water. And he tells him to undress and jump in. Suddenly, Eustace realizes that undress means to take off the dragon skin. And so he begins to gnaw and claw at the scales. And he realizes that he can shed his skin. Working at it, he finally peels it all off. But to his dismay... He finds that underneath, he's got another dragon skin. He tries a second time and a third to no avail. Same thing happens each time. And in the end, the lion says, you're going to have to let me go deeper. And here's how Eustace tells the story later. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty desperate by now. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. 
And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, laying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. Then he caught hold of me. He threw me in the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And then I saw. I turned into a boy again. I think for many of us, it's hard to read that passage without weeping. Because like the paralytic man and like Eustace, we've thought, if I can just get that one thing, if I can just get a little bit of help, then I can save myself, then everything will be okay. But we learned that Jesus wants to take us deeper. We've learned that we had to let him get his claws in us and go all the way to our hearts and reconfigure the main thing that our heart wanted. You see, it wasn't our deepest wish itself that was the problem. Just as it's not wrong for the paralytic to want to walk or for Eustace to want to be loved and respected. The fact that we thought getting our deepest wish would heal us, would save us or make everything perfect, that was the problem. We needed to learn to let Jesus be our savior. We have to let Jesus show us that he alone is ultimately satisfying. That he alone can fulfill our deepest desire. Only he can and will make us well. See, Jesus here meets the paralytic's deepest need, forgiveness of sin. Jesus doesn't always give us what what is asked for, but what is most deeply needed. Jesus gives us himself. He gives us forgiveness. Have you received forgiveness? Is Jesus your deepest desire? This response is not what anyone would have expected, and it angered the religious folks around. And so we see in verse 6, but some of the scribes were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? It's funny because they, they would have been right. Only God can forgive sins. Not even the Messiah is granted such power in the scriptures. But Jesus isn't blaspheming because, well, Jesus isn't just the Messiah. He is God. And Jesus validates this veiled claim to deity that's inherent in forgiving sins. Verse 8, immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. The paralytic rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Jesus is showing that the authority to forgive sins and to heal the paralytic 
is his authority. It's the same authority. It's the son of man's authority. This title, son of man, is Jesus's, it's his favorite self-designation. In the Old Testament, this term is used in several ways, and it sometimes mean, means being like a human being, and other times it means one who establishes God's kingdom. And Jesus is using the, the title to refer to himself with, with both connotations, with both ideas. As God incarnate, he is a human being who identifies with sinful humanity, He serves and suffers on our behalf. As God, his his is the coming Lord of glory. Jesus is redefining who the Messiah is and what he came to do. He is God and he brings the everlasting kingdom. However, that kingdom will only be realized through suffering service that will climax in his death on a Roman cross. While his suffering climaxes with his dead, the gospel story does not. I believe the gospel climaxes with his resurrection. Jesus ultimately defeats death and thus proves his identity as God. It confirms his authority over everything. The religious leaders in the picture here, though, are given a different kind of proof. I mean, from a human perspective, it's pretty safe to pronounce somebody's sins are forgiven. Right? Hey, your sins are forgiven. We can't really falsify that, right? So Jesus is going to provide evidence of the forgiveness of sins by healing the paralytic, which can be verified by all, right? Everybody can look and see he was a paralytic. He didn't walk, and now he walks. His authority to forgive is no less effective because of its invisibility. That's what he's going to prove by healing the paralytic. Let me me put it more simply. He has the authority to heal and to forgive sins. And here he's proving it to the the religious leaders that are around by saying to the guy, hey, so you know that I can forgive sins? I'm going to tell him, walk, he's going to walk. Hey, walk, go home. The guy gets up, walks, and goes home. Happy, I suppose. Jesus gives himself so that we can be cleansed. He gives himself so that we can be forgiven. And he gives us proof that he can be trusted in his resurrection. Again, the one big thing this morning, the point that I want you to contemplate this week is that Jesus gives. And the question is, have you received? All men have sinned, that is, tried to play God and do things their own way. You have sinned. You are guilty. God is just and he has adjudicated the situation rightly. Sin must be punished. And so apart from Jesus, you stand condemned and your future is hell. In the gospel, the good news tells us that Jesus gives. He's given himself for you. So that in response to faith, he can give you life. He took hell so that you could have heaven. You need merely to come to him with nothing and receive his grace and mercy. Say, make me clean. Let me illustrate it this way. It's as if you got a speeding ticket, you appeared in court, you're declared guilty, and the penalty for your speeding is a billion dollars, something you could never, ever pay. And upon declaring you guilty, the judge takes off his robes, comes down from the stand, puts his arm around you and says, son, daughter, I had to declare you guilty to be a good judge. 
The law is the law. Hey, but look up, chin up. I will pay the price. And then he proceeds to write you a check to pay the penalty for you. See, the gospel is even more than that, though. Because not only does Jesus pay the penalty for us, but when we place our faith in him, he gives us all of his own accolades, all of his own achievements. He credits his manifold perfections to us. In Christ, we have unsearchable riches. It's as if all of Jesus' accomplishments are ours. He gives us his perfect life in exchange for our sinful lives. Takes what is ours and gives what is his. He trades places with us lepers when he makes us clean. Gives himself to make us clean, forgiven, and forever in fellowship with God. Friends, Jesus gives. Have you received? Would you pray with me this morning? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the unsearchable riches that are ours in Christ Jesus. We thank you for forgiveness. We thank you for the righteousness that you've credited to our account. And we pray that with each passing day, we wouldn't be as a man that has uh, millions and billions of dollars in the bank and never draws any money from it. But that we would draw on the infinite riches that we have in Christ. That is continually keeping the gospel before us. Continually remembering your beauty, your perfection, your glory. Continually making you our deepest desire. Lord, be our treasure this day. Help us to remember that you give and that we have received. And to joy in that. And Lord, if we haven't received, pray that we would do that today for the first time. And experience your infinite worth and true satisfaction. We ask these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.